Good to see each one of you here today. It's always encouraging to me when uh, anybody shows up week after week. I greatly appreciate that. And uh, many of you have been faithful to this class over the years, more years than I'd care to say. But uh, it's wonderful to see you. Uh, today, we come up on what really I think is, in my mind, the highlight of the book of Leviticus. And uh, we have <clears throat> successfully made it uh, through chapters 11 to 15. And all the details of cleanness and uncleanness, it's all building up. You might have asked yourself the question, what is the purpose of all these details about cleanness and uncleanness? This is getting depressing. Uh, just living has a potential for making us unclean. Begin to wonder, could I make it through an entire day uh, without stumbling into uncleanness? Uncleanness adheres to human beings like mud, adheres to a pig in a wallow. What hope is there for us? Um, chapter, chapters 1 through 7, we saw that we have sacrifices. The Lord is intended to uh, cover our sin. We have chapters 8 through 10 that show us we have holy priests to um, make these sacrifices before the Lord. That's the Lord's will. And then in 11 to 15, <clears throat> we see that the, our, our problems go way deeper than just something we do every once in a while. I mean, it, it goes so deep that it's just a part of our being, uncleanness. Is there only any hope for us? And chapter 16 describes Yom Kippur, the Day of the Atonement. And we see, yes, God has a plan for dealing with sin, for dealing with uncleanness. We can't do anything to improve our own situation, but God is gracious. And now in chapter 16, we see his grace on full display for everyone to see. Oftentimes, in dispensational circles, we might have a tendency to go overboard on viewing a dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New. <clears throat> Early uh, dispensationalists would say things like, well, salvation in the Old Testament was by works, and in the New Testament it's by grace. So the Old Testament, think of it as a dispensation of works, and in the New Testament, the dispensation of, of grace. <clears throat> uh, that prevailed for a while until somebody who knew the Bible <laughs> started saying, wait a minute, that's going too far. That's, that's bordering on what we call hyper-dispensationalism. The Bible from cover to cover is grace. The sooner we get that in our minds, the better off we are. Okay, so here now is an exposition 
of God's grace in full display. Now, why do we need the Day of Atonement? It's the most special day in Israel's worship, and it happens every year. Gracious provision for cleansing from all uncleanness from the tabernacle and individual Israelites' lives. Everything needs to be cleansed. Once a year, it's a special day. It was necessary for God's continued dwelling among his people because these people who fell into uncleanness so easily would then maybe not deal with that or maybe it would escape their attention that something had happened in their lives, something they had really no control over, but it made them unclean. And then they came to the temple, or to the, now at this stage, to the tabernacle, and they infected the tabernacle with their uncleanness. Maybe in the life of a priest, even, something would happen, and the priest would go into the tabernacle unclean. And now the whole tabernacle is defiled. In order for God to maintain his dwelling as a holy God, there had to be holiness in the tabernacle. And so that meant even the things in the tabernacle once a year had to be specifically cleansed. Everyone looked forward to this day all year long. It wasn't just a day off from work. It was a day of personal introspection, a day of personal rejoicing. God is about to do for me what I can't do for myself. And of course, just like all the other sacrifices we've seen in Leviticus, this day involved the shedding of blood and the appropriate application of it. Without the shedding of blood, the author of Hebrews tells us, there is no forgiveness. There must be a sacrificial animal who dies in my place. And then the blood has to be applied in the appropriate place within the tabernacle. And on this one day a year, even the high priest enters the the holiest place, literally the holy of holies. But in Hebrew, that means the holiest place there is. That's going right into the very throne room of God. What a fearsome thing that must have been. If you were the high priest, well, you ladies, sorry, you couldn't have been the high priest, but just imagine, you know, that somehow you were the high priest, And uh, there you are, you're parting that thick curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies. You're going in with your sensor, and it's, it's producing a lot of smoke. You're going in, you hope that this smoke forms enough of a cloud so that so that you can't see the very glory of God, which would result in your immediate death. And there you sprinkle 
the blood of the sacrificial animal, the bull, on the, <clears throat> the place of atonement, the mercy seat, we call it in English. By the way, I haven't done any commentary suggestions for you lately, so here's a really good one to add to your library. It's uh, in the set, the New International Commentary on the Old Testament, Psalm Leviticus, and it's written by Gordon J. Wenham. Uh, some of you may already have this, this uh, commentary. If you don't, I recommend it. It's easy to do. Just hit Amazon Books, type in Wenham, and there you are. And a few days later, you're going to have your commentary. It's easy. Uh, and it's not all that expensive. I didn't price it lately, but I think when I bought it, it was about half the price it is now. All right, so let's talk then about the activities of the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> first of all, first activity, taking God's solemn warning to heart. Turn with me, please, to Leviticus 16, and let's look at verse 1. The Lord spake to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near. Notice, they drew near before the Lord, and the implication there is too close to the Lord. Remember when we were talking <clears throat> about their deaths in Leviticus 10, we mentioned that probably the best interpretation of the phrase they offered strange fire, literally foreign fire, is that they, the fire represented their priestly service and they did something that was not appropriate in their priestly service. They just came in Uninvited, uninvited to the Holy of Holies. It was not their privilege to do that, and uh, God struck them dead. So, this is a serious matter. <clears throat> this is a solemn warning. Don't let this happen to you. And uh, so now, <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. Does, the, the way is restricted. It's restricted to only you, the high priest, and only once a year on Yom Kippur. Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. The, the word mercy seat there is that word uh, basically that uh, we have. It's kaporath. Uh, but we'll get to that here in a moment. What is atonement? We need to go back and, and uh, remind ourselves exactly what atonement is. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering. Well, not the whole animal, just its shed blood. Uh, and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat 
and shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist, and wear the linen turban, for these are holy garments. All right, so he had to dress not in his magnificent vestments that he wore every other day of the year. Remember back in Exodus, uh, we had a very complete description of what these normal priestly garments looked like. They were uh, just, uh, they had gold, they had precious stones, uh, they had the two stones, the Urim and the Thummim, literally lights and perfections. Uh, they had intricate weaving, uh, embroidery, a uh, gold plate on the, the turban he wore. Uh, he looked like a king. He was, nobody else in the, na- in the whole nation looked like he did most of the time. But then this passage says there's a whole different set of clothes, a clothing I want you to wear on Yom Kippur. And it's just simply white linen. It wasn't even as fancy as a regular priest's outfit. This thing was just plain white, no adornment, the kind of thing that perhaps a slave would wear. Servant, uh, a lowly servant, perhaps of a king. All right, so here now is just a very, very plain attire. Why is that the case? It is to show the importance. Yes, okay, high priest, you are top dog priest, 364 days a year. But on this day, you are coming before me, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you're not going to look in any way regal. You're going to come in humility, knowing that you have the privilege of offering animal sacrifices for the entire nation and for their cleansing on this special day. Here's a quote by, uh, by Wenham. Notice, among his fellow man, men, his dignity as a mediator between man and God is unsurpassed, and his splendid clothes draw attention to the glory of his office every other day except this day. But in the presence of God, even the high priest is stripped of all honor. He becomes simply the servant of the king of kings, whose true status is portrayed in the simplicity of his dress. I suppose you would say the high priest might get a little bit proud that God had chosen him to be uh, the leader of the whole nation, spiritually speaking. Uh, I know it's a, it's a danger for pastors to get to feel this way. One time I sat across a pastor at a special occasion. Uh, I was teaching at the time at Maranatha Baptist Bible College, and uh, the faculty members would have breakfast with key board members. And I listened to this fellow sitting across from me at the table describe uh, what he had done, notice what he had done, uh, 
and establishing a church that he pastored. He told me they, used, they started out in a rented facility, then finally they were able to afford to buy a little bit of property, and they, bought, they built a building, and then as the, as the, uh, the church grew, they needed more and more space, they had more and more income coming in, and so they built a bigger building, sort of like um, that church building in Easley, that I should say the complex, uh, Rock Springs. And you look and you've got the baby church, and then you've got the mama bear church, and then you've got the huge, audit, you know, makes the, uh, the amphitorium look small on BJ's campus. And uh, it, you could see how it grew and grew and grew. And so this fellow was telling me about that and what the latest insurance value of all his church property was. And as he went on and on and on, I got sicker and sicker to my stomach because not one, not one statement about, isn't it wonderful what the Lord has done for us in our church? And all glory goes to him. No, no, all glory was going to that guy. Oh, what a danger that a person would, because of how God has used him, that he would start thinking, hmm, I'm pretty special. You know, look at all the people we've got. Look at all the influence I have. I, I, I. Nope, not going to happen to the high priest. He's going to re be reminded at least once a year that he is the humble servant of the king of kings. Okay, third thing that would happen was the sacrificing of the purification offering for himself first and then for his fellow priests. There, verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. All right? So this is for himself primarily, but also for the priests as a whole. Unlike the normal purification offering, which was sprinkled against the, the uh, veil between the holy place and the holiest of holies, and placed on the incense altar in the holy place, this one, this, this blood of the bull sacrificed on the Day of Atonement was taken right in to the holiest place and was sprinkled on the kaporath. That's what we're calling the mercy seat, but literally it says the place of atonement. Now, let's remind ourselves what atonement is. Atonement is when someone's wrath is satisfied in some way. That's a broad, I guess you'd say a broad meaning. Uh, for instance, when, when uh, you know, we had a situation where Jacob was leaving the employment of uh, Laban, and he didn't tell Laban he was going anywhere, 
but uh, he gets out into the wilderness and then the messengers come and they tell him, oh, by the way, there, uh, Jacob, your brother Esau is coming to meet you with, by the way, they have four, he has 400 guys with him. You know, they're all very capable warriors. They're armed to the teeth. And Jacob just, you know, he's scared senseless. So who remembers what he does? What does Jacob do as he learns that his brother Esau is coming to meet him? What's his plan? Yeah, they're, they're various groups of presents, animals and, you know, various wealth. And, and uh, there's wave after wave of these presents go to, to, towards Esau. And he thinks, he, as a matter of fact, he says right out, I will coffer his face. I will uh, basically propitiate his wrath is the, in, is the meaning of that idiom, to cover one, another's face. In other words, he's thinking that if he can be magnificent enough in his gifts to his brother Esau, Esau will no longer be wrathful uh, against him. Because the last time he knew, Esau uh, was going to kill him. And uh, so now... He's thinking, okay, well, it's been all these years, but Esau, his, his wrath has just been simmering all these years. I'll, I'll atone for myself with all these presents. Now, of course, the Lord had worked in Esau's heart, and he did not intend on murdering his brother, and he, in fact, well, refused the gifts. Finally, he relented when Jacob insisted, but that's the idea of atonement, to propitiate someone's wrath. And here we have in the spiritual realm the importance of this yearly sacrifice within the holy place of the application of the, of the blood of this bull that had been slaughtered. And then, of course, too, uh, we'll find out here in a moment, the blood of the goat. There's going to be two goats. And one goat gets chosen to be the sacrifice. And the other goat becomes what we refer to in our English versions as the scapegoat. So both of these animals, the bull and the goat chosen to be the sacrifice, their blood is applied to the place of atonement. Where is that place? Well, it's built right into the cover of the ark. So here's the ark of the covenant, and then there's a solid gold covering over the top of the ark, and that is where the high priest would place the blood, sprinkle the blood on that, uh, that place of atonement. So, Here's this, here's this symbology then, as God dwells above the, the Ark of the Covenant in his full glory, and he looks down, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the primary thing there were the, the, the stone tablets on which God, by his very finger, had written the Ten Commandments the heart of the law. 
there represented inside the ark. And as the Lord looks down now, the blood intervenes between all of us who have violated the, the Ten Commandments and every other aspect of the law that, gave, that God gave his people. And now he sees the shed blood. And on that basis, he can, he can, his, his wrath can be propitiated. He can continue to dwell with his people. He can forgive his people. And that's, that is the very heart of the Day of Atonement. Now the sacrificial blood intervenes between our holy God and the law. Then the fourth aspect was the casting of lots over the goats. And there's a, there's a lot of verses in chapter 16 about this sacrifice and, uh, well, this, these two goats and what happens to each one. And so we're thinking, wow, within the most important day of the year, this uh, ceremony with the goats seems to be the most important aspect of the most important day of the year, spiritually. So, notice, one of these goats will be sacrificed as a sin offering. Its blood joins the sacrifice of the bull, its blood, and the other one will bear Israel's sins outside the camp. And it is set free, and the Hebrew says, free for Azazel. What in the world is Azazel? And so here we have it described in verses 7 through 10 and then 15 through 22. A very elaborate ceremony. And the first part of it, of course, was the casting of lots to determine the fate of each one of these goats individually. And the one that was chosen to be sacrificed would be immediately killed, its blood collected, but the other goat would be, Aaron would place his hands, both hands, by the way, not just one, specifies both hands on the goat for Azazel, and he would confess his sin and the sins of the nation, and then this goat would be led away the text says, by the person who is prepared for this job, would be led away and set free in the wilderness. Well, we'll get to that too. There's some meaning we need to talk about there. But uh, what a wonderful, once again, uh, provision of our gracious God. Taking the sins of the people off into an unclean place, off far removed from the camp and that represented the carrying away of our sins through the Day of Atonement. Now the emphasis on the details of the goat taking up so much of the chapter seems to indicate that this is a central event of the day. The main interpretive issue of course is the meaning of Azazel What is that? Very rare term. Uh, Some interpreters 
basically take this word to mean the name of a, de of a demon. They say, well, one goat is for Yahweh and the other one for Azazel. So it must be that just, be just as Yahweh is a person, so Azazel is a person. As a matter of fact, when I, when I would type in the, the word Azazel, uh, Microsoft Word was always correcting it to have a capital A. <laughs> it's rascals, they're, they're trying to build uh, the interpretation of <laughs> adopting this, this interpretation. Well, it's true, there, there are some verses in the Old Testament that speak of demons living in, you know, wilderness places, but um, this doesn't have to necessarily mean a place that's so uninhabitable, nobody could live there, the goat would starve to death, and uh, that would be the end of it before it has an opportunity to come back and uh, infect the God's people with more sin. In other words, uh, it's going to be the case that, uh, you know, this, this thing, this uh, scapegoat would be back, and we didn't want that, so uh, somehow then this demon named Azazel would be uh, glad to have the goat back, and from, from Israel's standpoint, uh, the sin is returned to its source. Could be that uh, Azazel was another name for Satan himself. And so uh, here, Satan, we, we see you as the author of sin, and so you can have it back in the form of this, of this goat that's uh, going to be bringing it to you. Uh, yeah, it's, it's possible. I think there's a better interpretation, and that is that Azazel is a very rare Hebrew word that means total destruction. Uh, this, is, this is, in other words, Azazel just seem, merely means uh, that this is the goat for, de, for destruction. It's going to die out there in the wilderness. Uh, <clears throat> And uh, it's kind of the same idea that we saw back in uh, verse 22. Turn, your, if you would, to uh, verse 22. And we're going to see uh, the idea here that's parallel to the term Azazel. Here we go. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And that phrase, a remote area, area is literally a land of cutting off. And so, in other words, it's, it's saying this goat uh, is, is going to a very desolate place where we're sure it's going to die out there. And uh, that then would be parallel to saying it's the goat for Azazel. In other words, we know that goat's going to bear away the sins of Israel, and then it's going to die out there in this horrible uh, wilderness. As a matter of fact, later uh, rabbinic writing says that this guy who is to lead the goat out there in the wilderness is actually supposed to set it free in a place where 
they then push it over a cliff and they, they imagine that Azazel means a tall, rocky crag. That's possible too. But I think it's, it's overall the case that this is the goat that's bearing Israel's sin far away into a place where surely it will die and not come back. The goat for Azazel, I would argue, is a type of Christ. All right, now, what is a type? Let's talk about that just briefly. A type is defined as a person, place, or thing in the Old Testament that bears an historical correspondence, an objective historical correspondence with a person, place, or thing in the New Testament. All right? An example of, of, a, of a thing that is a type, because our Savior said it was a type. The bronze serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness, our Savior said, that's a type of me. Why is that? Well, look at all the historical correspondences. The this bronze serpent was put on a pole and held high so everyone could see it. Christ placed on a cross and held high so people could see our Savior. Why would they be wanting to look at this bronze serpent on a pole? Well, because fiery serpents had bitten them and they were dying. And so if they would look to faith by faith, on this serpent on the the pole, that they would be healed. Similarly, when Christ is lifted up uh, on the cross, people who look to him in faith can be forgiven of their sins and healed ultimately uh, of their sin. Uh, And we could go on and on. We could suggest other ways there's a historical correspondence between the two, the two between the bronze serpent and, and Christ. But I think you get the idea. It has to be a legitimate, objective correspondence. So we ask the question, <clears throat> what is there about the, the goat for Azazel that is a type of Christ? The main thing I think is, as Hebrews 13, 11 Verse, uh, verse 11 and 12 says that Christ died outside the camp, outside the gates of Jerusalem, out where uh, it was an unclean place. He took all the sins of the nation that had ever been committed, that ever would be committed, committed and the sins of all people of all time, outside Israel too. And he died for all sin outside the camp. That's, that's what the author of Hebrews has to say about this type of Christ in the Old Testament. All right, next. The high priest had to perform the same detailed atonement year after year, and yet there was no end to uncleanness. Only Christ, our high priest, 
could atone for sin once for all. That's the idea of Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. We've got a better high priest than the high priest of the Day of Atonement. We've got one who didn't need to have his own sins atoned for, as Aaron did in this case. No, because he didn't have any sin to atone for. He was the sinless Son of God. And because he is sinless, he can take our sin upon himself. He didn't have any of his own sin to die for. And not only that, but rather than simply shed the blood of an animal, which the author of Hebrews says can't ultimately cure the sin problem, he took on himself the pure, spotless Lamb of God, took your sin and my sin and everybody else's sin, and it was placed on him. Literally, he became sin for us. Not just that he bore it externally somehow. No, before the Father, he became sin for us. And he suffered the eternal wrath of God that we would have been having to pay forever. But because he was God in human flesh, he could deal with all, he could, he could be uh, uh, killed and, and die for all sin in a finite amount of time. But we must not ever mitigate the spiritual suffering that Christ uh, suffered on the cross. It is so deep and vast and infinite what he bore, the wrath of God for us, we can't even begin to imagine it. All we can do is be thankful for it. Here is the heart of the gospel of grace. And the book of Leviticus looks forward to, our, to the ultimate high priest who will ever live, and that is our Savior. That is the heart of the gospel. Please note, the, the gospel is not give your heart to Jesus. It is not invite Jesus into your heart. It is not any one of the, the lesser statements we make when it comes to what the gospel is. No, the gospel is I as a sinner Believe I put my trust in the fact that Christ bore my sin and suffered the wrath of God for my sin, and now he offers me and you and everyone we proclaim the gospel to. Here is forgiveness of sin. The only way of salvation, no other way given among men by which we may be saved. Hallelujah. God's grace is in full display. Yes, in typological form on the Day of Atonement, but nonetheless, it was for our benefit. It was for our instruction. It is for our hope and our rejoicing. God has done what we could never have done for ourselves. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for what Christ has done for us. 
Help us to appreciate what our Savior did in becoming a man, taking our sin upon himself. Holy God and holy man. And then he rose again from the dead and said he was coming back someday to receive us to himself. May this be the day, Lord. May it be the day of our complete and utter transformation so that we end up with a glorious resurrection body like yours currently. And we pray too, Lord, that you will encourage our hearts. We pray that you will help us to live in in, uh, thankfulness every day for your full grace. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.